0: Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons, where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? All right, I hope you're awake at this point. All right, I'm awake and I'm ready to go, so. um, You may be wondering, you're looking up at me, my name is Ryan, by the way, if we haven't met, I'm the children's pastor here at Scotts Hill. And you may be wondering, I do have somewhat of a reputation around here. I have a reputation of being that New Year's pastor, that New Year's guy. I'm happy to say that today I'm busting out of my reputation onto another holiday weekend, all right? No, in all reality, it is such a privilege and an honor always to stand before you. It is a joy, but it is also a very weighty thing to stand up here and to speak God's words and not my own. So I can say before you with all honesty that I have read and studied and strained through this text uh, that we're going to talk about today, and I believe that the Lord um, has a great plan to move us from glory to glory as we hear and we receive his word today. So as we begin, would you pray with me? Lord, I am so grateful to be standing here. You know the journey it's been uh, to get to this point. And Father, you are so kind to us. You are so gracious. And Father, we do love your truth, so that is why we are eager. Um, That is why it's nothing of me or my voice or anything like that. But Lord, we desire to hear from you today. So I pray, Father, that you would speak very clearly to us, that you would give us action points to take away from this message today and how to evaluate our own hearts and to grow in greater communion with you. Lord, we love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so if you have been around, we have been working through Romans, slowly but surely, and we just exited probably the one of the mountaintop experiences of Romans in chapter six. Um, if you didn't leave chapter six feeling like Rocky Balboa, I don't think you were really In it or listening very closely. Um, In chapter six, we learned two main takeaways. The first of which is, God's grace is greater than my stubborn sin. And secondly, God's grace is greater than my occasional sin. In other words, God's grace outweighs and overcomes the unbeliever's spiritual deadness. But God's grace also outweighs and overcomes the believer's occasional stumbling into sin. That's good news, isn't it? Because of God's grace, we are no longer slaves to sin, but rather we are slaves to doing what is right. And in chapter six, I think you could see a bunch of newness that we experience. We see that we have a new master, the Lord Jesus, we have a new fruit or a new lifestyle or conduct. We have a new destiny, a different future. We have a new obligation to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And perhaps one of my favorite parts of chapter six is the very end. And if you did Awana as a child, you know these verses by heart. That the free gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. To which I say, church, free? Since when is anything free in our world, let alone peace with God and an eternal home in heaven? Can you just hear the, the freedom bells ringing? This is incredible. If Romans were likened to a roller coaster ride, then when we end chapter six, hands are straight up, we are screaming in anticipation and joy. But do you know what comes at the top of the roller coaster? The drop, right? The drop. So today, we're gonna dive back down into Romans 7. And Romans 7 is gonna speak to us about where we live every day. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand the reality of the struggle that we all face as believers, even as we grapple with this amazing eternal freedom. And to do this, he does it in a very interesting way. He zeroes in on the law, all right? To which we say, the law? Yes, if you would count the word law or commandment in chapter seven, it's used over 30 times. Okay, Paul, we get it. This is very important to you. But I think, and I'm passionate about this, we need to understand terms and words, right? We use words all the time and we don't really understand where they come from. So my question is, what do you mean, Paul, by the law? There's a lot of things it could mean. Do you mean the Mosaic law all the laws that that Moses wrote? Do you mean the Ten Commandments? I mean, we all should know those, right? Do you mean all of those minute, small, little regulations in Deuteronomy? Well, I think yes and no. Paul had all these in mind, but I really believe that here in Romans 7, when he speaks of the law, he's speaking of a broader and bigger principle, and it is this. The law is our attempt to achieve the righteousness of God by keeping rules. That's pretty broad, that's a broad statement. That's not just the words of Moses or the words of Jesus, that is where we live, that is what we do. The law is our attempt to achieve the righteousness of God by keeping rules. In other words, God says, you can't do anything for me, so I'm gonna do it all for you. The law causes us to say no, I will do something for you, God, and I will do it on my own. Remember that throughout the book of Romans, Paul has addressed extremes, right? He's addressed legalism on the one side and license on the other. And most of chapter six, as Pastor Phil was speaking about, he was addressing those who live in that world of license, presuming upon the grace of God, but we've been speaking also about those who idolize the law, right? And that's where we come back to today. Paul's gonna take his aim at the other side of the pendulum. I think now Paul has in view as he speaks a believer who now that they have this newfound freedom from sin, they start to think that they may could do something good for God on their own. Does that sound like us? We think we can do something good on our own to please God. This is legalism. And I think we fall prey to it all the time. I was thinking about some categories or different ways for us to think about legalism. I thought about some laws that we love to create. Here's a few of them. We love the law of tradition, especially here in the South. We love the, our little comfortable traditions that have nothing to do with the Bible or scripture, but they give us some sense of safety and belonging. We say things like, we please God because we do this, or we please God because we don't do this. Or how about the law of position? We love this, especially in our theological circles. We please God because we hold to this theological point, even though that is not a primary issue that deals with salvation. We make these laws, and if you don't fit into our category, you're ousted. Or how about this one? I've experienced this in my own life. People have these legalistic laws of devotion with God. Like, if you don't read the Bible for 32 minutes every morning, then you must not love God. Or if you don't pray for exactly one hour every single day, I don't know about you and God, right? We create these laws, these artificial boundaries that are not in the scripture. That's legalism. And at the heart of all of this legalism is Jesus is not enough. We must add something else to him. And at the root of this, I believe, is a misunderstanding of how God works. We rightly stand under Paul's rebuke to the church at Galatia. Do you remember these verses in Galatians 3 2 and 3? Paul says, There, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? are you so foolish? After beginning by the spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Here's the point today that I hope we walk away with. God's grace is greater than the law, which means that God's grace is needed not just when we're at our worst, but when we think we're giving our best. I'm gonna read that one more time. God's grace is needed not just when we're at our worst, but when we think we're giving our best. So with that in mind, let's turn together to Romans chapter seven, grab your Bibles, grab your devices, go ahead and turn to Romans seven. And as you turn there to verse one, I do have to make some observations. Notice that Pastor Phil gave me an entire chapter to cover on the day he's gone. (laughs) Notice also a few weeks ago, the only other person to preach in this series is Garrett, and he got a whole chapter But Phil has these nice little chunks to do. No, I'm just kidding. I I really appreciate the opportunity. We're going to press through. All right. So let's start together unpacking the first six verses. All right. So I'm going to read this. This is one coherent illustration. I'm going to read it and follow along. Since I'm speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then, if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law." So Paul opens up here in chapter 7, and he's talking about the impact of the law, the impact of the law. And he uses this illustration, which to the Romans of the day was, they understood it, and I think it is pretty understandable if we just think closely about it. Essentially, a married person was only bound to their spouse and obligated to uphold their commitment to their spouse as long as the spouse was living. You following me? Okay. So put simply, Paul is just introducing a principle of life, and that is this, that death releases you from any obligation to the law. Death releases you from any obligation to the law. If you are married, you're faithful to your spouse for as long as they live. But if you die, you are free to take another spouse and not to worry about obligations to your late spouse. Think about it. No matter your obligation to a person, when you die... (laughs) Nothing can be asked of you. You don't live in the realm of requirement anymore once you die. So how does this relate to us and to the law? Well, I think we can see the players here. We can see that the ex-husband is referring here to the law. The new husband is referring to the Lord Jesus. The wife is referring to us as the body of Christ, Death is referring to baptism into Christ's death, as Paul talked about in Romans 6.3. And remarriage is our union with Christ in his resurrection life, as he mentioned in Romans 6.5. So this is a major change. This is a divorce and a remarriage, right? So the question is, why was such a radical shift needed? What was wrong with our marriage to the law? Wasn't that just a happy marriage that we had? Why could we not stay in union with the law. I love the way that Watchman Nee describes it. I'm gonna quote from him. He says, the husband, or the law, and the wife, us, are totally unsuited to one another. He is a most particular man, accurate to a degree, and she is decidedly easygoing. With him, all is definite and precise. With her, all is casual and haphazard. He wants everything just so, while she takes things as they come. How could there be happiness in such a home? And then that husband is so exacting. He is always making demands upon her. The two cannot get on at all. Theirs are completely incompatible natures. Church, the law is a spouse who demands but does not help. This is a desperate place to be, to be bound in a marriage that requires everything and offers nothing. For this reason, Paul tells us the good news about our new relationship to the law, and it is this, we died to the law. We died to the law. Read again with me in verses four and five. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you were also put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another you belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. Now, hear this important distinction. The law didn't die, we died to the law. The law wasn't done away with, our old selves were done away with through Christ's death. The law still exists. It's our old selves that don't exist anymore, and therefore the law has no authority over us. And I love the language that Paul uses here. It's passive. Did you notice we were put to death? It was an action done for us, not by us. The result of dying with Christ and being united with him is that we no longer belong to the law. We belong to Christ. And as for that woman who was bound to that harsh husband, the woman has died and the husband no longer has any authority or say in her life. She has a new, better husband now. And that is our story as well, church. Now we don't have a spouse who is exacting, but one who is empowering. We don't have a spouse who hammers us, but one who helps us. We don't have a spouse who accuses us, but one who accepts us. And what is the result of our new marriage to Christ? New ambitions, new desires, new results. But catch this, this is so important. We have not died to the law to be lawless, but to actually be able for the first time to fulfill the law. In dying to the law, we allow Christ to do the work that we could never do. This new marriage church changes everything. And it brings us to this next amazing reality about the impact of the law. Not only have we died to the law, but secondly, we were released from the law. Look at verse six again. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. When Paul says that we are released from the law, it's beautiful. It means that the law is literally ineffective. It's inoperative. It's powerless over us. The law was deprived of all of its force and all of its influence in our lives. We don't need to live in fear of the law or the consequences of them because they're not held over us any longer. We have died to it, And now we live not by what we see, but by what we don't see. Not by mere letters on a page, that's what Paul means by the old letter, but by the spirit of the living God who gives life to those words. We serve in the new work of the spirit. That's the same verb that Paul used in chapter 6 to say we're slaves to doing what is right. Now we work in the spirit. We serve in the spirit We have a new desire and a new ability to keep the law in the way God intended, by belonging to Christ and being empowered by his spirit. If you belong to Christ, church, you have died to the law and you are released from the law. Now, I love the way Paul writes because it's almost like he anticipates arguments, right? We've seen that all along and I can just see the crowd begin their argument. Paul, Paul, whoa, whoa, whoa. This law seems bad. (laughs) It seems to bring out the worst in me. And hey, it even made me die? This cannot be good. When we come to verse seven, we see that Paul does anticipate this argument. And here he's gonna lay out for us, which I think is so instructive and helpful. He gives us the intention of the law in verses seven through 13. In other words, why, Paul? Why does the law exist? What is its purpose? And I think first he lays out in verse seven, the first purpose of the law, the law exposes sin. The law exposes sin. Look with me again at verse seven. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not, but I would have not known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet. Here, Paul is responding to this hypothetical argument of the law is bad with a resounding, no, it's not. Sin takes advantage of the law. The law doesn't take advantage of sin. In this sense, the law could be likened maybe to a mirror, a mirror reflecting the actual condition of a person. Or, I love this one, I'm a medical guy, an x-ray diagnosing hidden spiritual disease in a person. Now, let me ask you some questions. It would be foolish to get angry at a mirror, wouldn't it? It would be pointless to call an x-ray bad because it shows you what you do not want to see, right? The mirror is not moral, it just tells you how it is. The x-ray doesn't have an agenda. It's just revealing to you what's already there. The problem, brothers and sisters, is not the law. The problem is us. And here's the thing. The law shows us what's wrong, but it doesn't have the power to fix us. It doesn't have the power to save us. And Paul has already started this train of thought long ago. In Romans 3.20, he said, therefore no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. And later in Romans 4.15, he says, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law exposes sin because it's already there. Now, I love this very simple illustration, follow with me. Think about a really clumsy person. Raise your hand if you know a really clumsy person in your life. Maybe you're that person. Okay, that's great. All right, so total klutz. We're talking about total klutz here, all right? Now, this person, this man, is an absolute klutz, and he can't walk five steps without running into something, knocking over over something. But here's the thing. When this man is seated and not moving, no one knows that he's a klutz. There's no recognition of his clumsiness. It isn't until something is asked of him. It isn't until someone says, get up and go do this for me, that you can tell that that person is an absolute klutz. Right? Was he a clumsy man when he was seated? Absolutely. But his movement proved that he was a clumsy man. The law is just like that. When we move, When we show ourselves, it proves the sin that is already there. So we see that the law exposes sin. Secondly, the law excites sin. Now this is really interesting. The law excites sin. Look with me again at verses eight and nine. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again. Okay, Paul, it's, it's bad enough that the law exposes my sin, but you're trying to tell me that the law excites my sin? It arouses it, it wakes it up? Yes, the law is like a power outlet for sin. This is nothing new. Paul has been talking about this elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. The law is like a power outlet for sin. And and I love the way that, that Paul describes it. He almost gives sin lifelike qualities, doesn't he? Sin is painted as being strategic, of being a force that's living, that plans and executes. Sin springs to life like a wild animal waiting to pounce on its prey. In fact, the phrase seizing an opportunity is the same wording to use for someone on the base of an operation, like a military expedition. So do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Sin is sly and is always calculating. Sin is like a parasite that attaches itself to the law and then twists it and uses it for its own purpose. Now, how can we know for certain that the law excites sin in us? I believe really only one illustration is needed today, and it's this one right here. (laughs) All right, let's be honest with each other. If you see this, what's the first thing that you want to do? Come on. That's right, I think it'd be the same answer for a two-year-old and a 92-year-old. You want to touch that wet paint, right? So that, you didn't even think about touching it until you saw that sign, right? But when immediately, when you saw that sign, that sin was excited in you. Okay, maybe you're not totally convinced. All right, I got one before you, it may hit closer to home. <laughs> Again, I don't need to expound on this, this fact, that everything is all well until you see the sign, and then you're like, ah, I can, I, I can do more than that. that, that's fine, nine, stay alive, you know, whatever the saying is, I, I, can, I can do it. Um, now, I did hear that Chris Ortigo is not excited to sin by this, so you can tell her good job, she apparently always drives the speed limit, but all the rest of us, we fall under this trap, I fully believe it. The law excites sin in us. Those of you who have young children, do I need to explain? Right? You can't even get out the words, (laughs) don't you dare cross the street before they are out there, right? Full bore into oncoming traffic. The law always excites their desire to break the law. Now, verse eight tells us that apart from the law, sin is dead, but Paul doesn't mean that sin is inactive or non-existent. He simply means that sin is lying dormant. Sin waits for the perfect opportunity to exploit our already rebellious nature when those restrictions are placed on us, right? It is so good at that. So we see that the law excites sin. Thirdly, the law condemns us. This is bleak now. The law condemns us. Verses 10 and 11, Paul says, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Let that sink in for a second. The law doesn't help us. The law condemns us. Rather than being a giver of life, the law is actually an instrument of death. The law is not 10 steps to be a better you, the law is 10 nails in your coffin. Though the law is inherently good and not sinful, as we'll see in a while here, sin uses the law to bring about our death. I love this. If sin is the murderer, the law is the loaded gun in sin's hand. And this is really what Jesus was talking about. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, we love the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, don't we? I mean, it's beautiful. And you get down to the end of chapter five and you, you hear the statement that we kind of brush away. Does anyone know what the last statement is? Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Is that possible? Not by the law. There's no way in ourselves by the law by keeping any set of rules that we can be perfect. And what Jesus was looking for in his hearers back then is the same thing he's looking for in us, and that is us crying out, I can't do it, Lord. I need your help. We must realize that the law imprisons us and Christ alone can set us free. I love the way that Paul says it back in Galatians He says, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. The law condemns us. A final intention of the law he gives in verses 12 and 13, and that is that the law creates a contrast. The law creates a contrast. Interesting verses, read with me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful, Beyond measure. Do you hear Paul reiterating again the reality? The law isn't bad. It is good. The law isn't sinful. It is holy because it reflects God's own character. But sin, like a parasite, attaches itself to the law and uses it for its sinister purpose. Why? So that the law can look more beautiful and sin can look more sinful. If something so evil can take something so good and make it look evil, how evil is that thing? I love to think of the image of a diamond, all right? So I think about a diamond, and if you have a diamond just in your hand, it's pretty amazing, it's pretty awesome. But if you take that same diamond and you put a dark backdrop behind it, how much more brilliant! is that diamond. How much more do you see its perfections? That is exactly what is happening with sin and with the law. We see the sinfulness of sin more because of the contrast with the law. So we've seen the intention of it. Now we're gonna roll into this last half of Romans chapter seven, which I admit has been very emotional for me to go through. It's an emotional section. And I think it's gonna be very touching for all of us as we hear its words. Paul has been, we've been on this journey with Paul about the intention. Now we're gonna shift into the inability of the law. Remember how I said very early on that the the law cannot save us. The law is powerless to help us. Well, this is a, a whole story of Paul's life of how this is a reality. And we know that this is very personal for Paul in the remainder of the chapter because he uses the word I, catch it, 40 times. He uses the word I 40 times in the remaining 11 verses. In them, we see a very real struggle with a very real Christian. Because Paul is basically taking the reality of what he just told the Romans and he's applying it to his own heart and he's grappling with this truth. The reality of sin being deceptive and the law being powerless to help him. And the way we're going to break this up is we're going to look at this last, these last remaining verses in four different laments or four different cries from Paul that I really believe, if we're honest with ourselves, will resonate with our hearts. So here's the first cry Paul cries out, I don't understand. I don't understand. Verses 14 through 17, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. Now I have to admit, on first reading, you're kinda like, what? Paul, what? Did we not just go to the mountaintop of Romans six? Did we not just say, we are no longer slaves to sin, hallelujah, and here we are again, and Paul is saying, I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. What happened, Paul? Are you talking about your experience before you were being saved? I don't think so. I think this is the reality of a believer in every way. And I think the key is verse 14. Look at it with me. Verse 14, the very key word of, of. Paul is of the flesh. He is not in the flesh. There's a big difference. Paul is saying that he is human and has a sin nature, just like every other descendant of Adam, and the human race as a whole is fallen and is enslaved to sin's corrupting influence in our lives. But even so, Paul cries, I don't understand. And brothers and sisters, this is not a cry of lacking knowledge. Did Paul lack knowledge? No. This is a cry of, this doesn't line up. This doesn't make sense to me. Paul, in his redeemed soul, couldn't stand behind the sinfulness he was seeing in his own heart. Does that resonate with you? For him and for us, it's almost like we go through these periods of living in temporary insanity, knowing in our heart of hearts who we really are in Christ, but practicing so easily the sin that contradicts it. And I think we're comforted here because we see an incredible Principle revealed by Paul in verse 17. This sheds light on the whole struggle. The reality that we have a dual nature. We have a dual nature. We have the redeemed soul and we have the sinful flesh. What are these two parts of us that are waging war? The redeemed soul is that inner part of us, it's the part that has been cleansed, it's the part that's been redeemed, it's the part that is being renewed day by day in the image of Christ. It's the part of us that desires to do what is right and what is pleasing to God. The redeemed soul or the redeemed mind, as Paul says, it's the part of us where the real Ryan is. The real us exists. But what is the flesh? The flesh is that part of us that remains from that old Ryan, from that old self. It's the part of us that stalks us in the darkness and draws us into sin. The flesh ensures that sin has a place remaining in us, irritating us and dogging our steps. Paul shows us this dual nature in other places as well, and I think no place is as clear as Galatians chapter five. He says there in verse 17, for the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want does this not resonate with you? Have you not been to this place before? I know I have. It would pain me and it would grieve me to tell you all the times that I have cried out to God, why am I doing this? This isn't who I am. But take heart, believer. The Lord who saved you knows who you are and knows who you really are. So we see his first cry, I don't understand. Secondly, we see another cry coming from Paul, I can't do it. Who has ever said that before? When they see the Christian life in front of them, if we're honest, we've all been at the place where we said, I can't do that. That's a tall order. I cannot. Romans 7, 18 through 20, Paul says, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. Yep, we've all been there, right? I can't do it. God requires more than I can give. I want to, but I just can't. Thus cries the one working to please God in their own strength, in their own ability. And notice Paul says, nothing good lives in my flesh. Brothers and sisters, if we try to live the Christian life in the power of the flesh, we will live defeated, we will live powerless, and we will live caught up in cycles of sin. So he cries out, I can't do it. Thirdly, he cries out, I'm at war, and specifically, in myself. I'm at war in myself, verses 21 to 23. Paul says, so I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Church, didn't Jesus say, a house divided against itself cannot stand? What a struggle. What a struggle we have. What a not so civil war going on in us at all times. I I like to think of this as the battle of the laws. We have the law of our redeemed mind, and we have the law of sin battling it out, duking it out all the time. And in this, we see two different desires, two different methods, and two different outcomes, don't we? We see that the law of my mind leads me to desire God, but the law of sin leads me to despise God. The law of my mind leads me to righteous actions, but the law of sin leads me to evil actions. The law of my mind frees me, but the law of sin imprisons me. Brothers and sisters, both of these laws operate in our bodies all the time. Both of these call to us and they lure us to obey them every day. The question is, which one will you obey? So now we get this, the deepest cry, the deepest cry, the deepest lament from Paul. Here's where he lands with this. Verse 24, his cry is, I am exhausted. I'm exhausted. Listen to what he says in verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Have you ever cried this to the Lord? I know I have. Can you feel the raw emotion here from Paul? The cry of total exasperation, of anxious longing. What a wretched man I am, or what a wretched woman that I am. What a pitiful and shameful and tired and worn down and beaten up person I am. Who will help me? Who will pity me? Who will take away my shame? Who will give me rest? Who will bandage up my wounds? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul likely had in mind a a gruesome practice of his day. When he says a body of death, he's, he's thinking about an image in the Roman culture where a criminal condemned to die catch this, would sometimes have a corpse tied around him so close that the decaying flesh of the corpse would start to infect the living body and would eventually take the criminal's life as well. This is the picture that Paul paints for us, that we carry around this corpse, this decaying flesh, this difficult, heavy sin. And just when we think that that roller coaster has bottomed out and we are at the lowest point and we are wretched and pitiful and who will help us, we get to verse 25. At the perfect time, Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Who will help me? Jesus. Who will pity me? Jesus. Who will take away my shame? Jesus. Who will give me rest? Jesus. Who will bandage my wounds? Jesus. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Jesus. Church, the law can't. Jesus can. Let's pray together. Father, I am so grateful to be in your house today. And Father, to have your song on my lips. Father, thank you that the Bible is so raw, it is so real, it does not gloss over anything. And Father, it paints the highest of highs and the glories of heaven, and it paints the wretched condition that we find ourselves in. But Father, it does not leave us in that wretched place. And though we return to it occasionally, Lord, when we but cry to you, we can also say thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord that I'm not a slave to sin any longer. Father, I pray for those that have that cry on their lips even this morning that came in here saying, oh, wretched man that I am, a wretched woman that I am, who will set me free? Lord, I pray that in their heart of hearts, they would acknowledge you as Lord and they would know that you are working where they can't even see. Father, I pray that they would be comforted and would be encouraged by the fact that they are approved by you not on the basis of law, but on the basis of faith, which is a gift from you. So Lord, I I praise you for your clarity, the clarity of your scripture. Father, I thank you for the realness of it. And Lord, I pray that we would all take it to heart, that we would do heart reflection and ask the question, where am I trying to do the Christian life on my own? And Lord forbid it that that would be that way any longer. But Lord, prepare us even for the glories of chapter eight, that the Holy Spirit within us is the one who allows us to be victorious. And so we praise you for that truth in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash steps. Until next time.